Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single most astounding thing that has happened in human history, or at least so far, because Jesus Christ is also coming back to get us, which will also be pretty astounding, 
that will make for a pretty good day. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was also the institution of the new covenant. The new covenant was predicted back in Jeremiah 31. But then when Jesus died, according to the writer of Hebrews, that new covenant went into effect. Because when you have a testament, there must be the death of the testator. And that created a unique time in the history of Judeo-Christendom, a unique time in human history, a time that will never be repeated. There will never be another moment like that. There was the clash of the old covenant against the new covenant, but you also have a people group who for 1,400 years had been under the law of Moses, and they were required to keep it. And if they missed it in any one element, they were guilty of the whole of the law. And so therefore, Paul could conclude that the purpose of the law was to shut every mouth and make everybody guilty. That was why the law of Moses even existed. The new covenant then stands in contrast with the old covenant. And for as long as I have stood here talking, I don't just mean this morning because that's a mere three minutes, but for as long as I've been standing in the pulpit talking, I have tried to emphasize the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, and you cannot mix and match those two covenants. You can't take a little bit of the old and then impose it onto the new. The new covenant is a genuinely, qualitatively different and new covenant. Hence the word new seems pretty obvious. The new covenant accomplished and is still accomplishing what the law of Moses never could. The old covenant never perfected anybody. The old covenant never saved anybody. The old covenant never created the relationship of one-on-one father-son that you find in the new covenant. Instead, what you find in the Old Testament is people constantly failing to keep the law and God constantly responding in punishment to it because the law was based on do stuff, do All these things, the 613 ordinances, the Ten Commandments, do these things. So it was really up to you to do the stuff and by your flesh to attempt to justify you. And no man ever accomplished that. By way of contrast, the new covenant says Christ has already done it. Christ has already established you with God. He already wrote your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. He already died as your sin substitute. He has already paid the sin penalty. He has already taken on the wrath of God as your substitute. Therefore, it's done. You, by grace, through faith, get eternal life. Now, if you just listen carefully, 
to what I just described, I described two very different things. One was, you try to do it, and nobody ever did. The other one is, Christ did it, he did it all, he gets all the glory, you as a recipient of his grace through faith get eternal life which the law could never accomplish. And so in the first century, in Jerusalem, one of the most astounding evidences of the validity of the story of Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection, one of the most identifiable proofs that Jesus was who he said he was, did what he said he was going to do, one of the historic realities that Christianity is based in is that Christianity got its first foothold in Jerusalem, the very place where people would know whether any of this was true. I read just this week a critic of Christianity arguing that Jesus did not exist. That's an argument that you don't find historically, and you don't find it coming out of Jerusalem, because those would be the people who would know if he existed or not, and not a one of them ever argues, well, he didn't exist. That's a modern argument that cannot be proven historically, but in Jerusalem, in the first century, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you have this clash of religious ideas. You've got the people who are saying, new covenant. Look, Jeremiah said it. That's why the writer of Hebrews repeats it. It's because new covenant, salvation by grace through faith, without the works of the law, that is happening in Jerusalem where there are also people dedicated and devoted to the law of Moses. And they've been given that law at Mount Sinai. It was mediated by angels. God insisted that they do it. God insisted that they keep the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. God insisted that they keep the Sabbath, the sign of the Mosaic covenant. And so they had every right religiously to say, well, God, Yahweh, told us to do this. And so who is this upstart Jesus coming along and saying, well, now through me, you can have eternal salvation that the law could never give you. So you can see the religious clash. It became a social clash. It became a societal clash. And yet, these differences stand. These huge, enormous differences stand. For instance, Leviticus 23.3, right there in the law. Let's start there because I think I told you that the reason we're going to the book of Galatians, what turned my mind to understand the next book we were going to look at, was that I visited my chiropractor. I did this like he's right over there. (laughs) I went to visit my chiropractor, and he is a church-going, Bible-reading guy. And he said to me once, I'm reading the book of Leviticus. I have a question. Yes? Are we supposed to be keeping all those rules? And I thought, see, even though you're going to a church somewhere, they have never made it clear to you the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
And the book of Galatians is all about that clash between the old covenant and the new covenant. And I never want anybody to misunderstand what I am saying, what the Bible is saying, what Paul taught, what the new covenant is about. I don't ever want anyone to be confused as my chiropractor was. Because I don't want to go to a confused chiropractor. <laughs> Look, Leviticus 23.3. Okay, should we be following these rules? For six days work will be done. But on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest. A holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Okay, so that's a rule. That's a hard and fast rule. That's a commandment. That's the fourth of ten. Keep the Sabbath. So then you ask religious people, you ask church-going people, are we supposed to keep the Sabbath? There was a big argument just this week on Facebook about Sabbath-keeping just this week because people are still confused by this. And the only reason people get confused by it is because they are taking something from the old covenant and they are trying to impose it on the new covenant. And I understand it. I get it. So many folks pick up their Bible, start reading it at any point, don't understand the way the Bible works. They just read it and they say, well, that's the word of God. So I guess I'm supposed to be doing that. And yet, when you read the rest of the Bible... And you use that as your standard to answer questions like, should we be keeping the Sabbath? There are things that happened in the New Testament. Jesus and his disciples picked corn one day on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees accused them of breaking the Sabbath. And then Jesus said that he was the Lord over the Sabbath. This is the same Jesus who said things like, no, Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. So based on that, Paul then would develop the theology where in Colossians 2, 16, 23, he could say, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or to drink or in respect of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Okay, look at the contrast. The contrast is, for six days, you'll do work. On the seventh day, it's a Sabbath of complete rest. So you've got to count those days, know that seventh day, keep that Sabbath. It is, after all, the sign of the covenant made between God and Israel on Mount Sinai. That's the Sabbath rule. Now compare that to Paul, the ex-Hebrew of the Hebrews, the one who said, as regards the law, I, I was blameless. And yet that same man ended up writing, don't let anybody judge you in regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbath days. That's a contrast. That's all I'm getting at. That is a huge contrast. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 7 is talking about the Melchizedek priesthood. If you don't know anything about Melchizedek, he shows up very, very briefly in the Bible. Back in Genesis, he shows up when Abraham is coming back from the battle with the kings. And then Abraham gives him 
10% of everything, tithes to him, proving that he is greater than Abraham, according to the writer of Hebrews. And then the writer of Hebrews in that discussion says that Jesus was promised that he would be a priest forever after the line, after the lineage of Melchizedek. And then he says, but how can Christ be a high priest? Nothing in the scripture says anything about a high priest coming from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He's not a Levite. Therefore, there's a change of the priesthood. And then he says, and if there's a change of the priesthood, there must of necessity be a change of the law. Okay, these are big contrasts. We went from high priests, only Levites, only descendants of Aaron, all the way over to Jesus, who's from Judah, who is an eternal high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is completely different than the Aaronic priesthood. That's a contrast. It's a huge contrast. How did that contrast come about? Well, because of the inception of the new covenant. A moment ago, I read Paul saying, don't let anybody judge you in regard to food or drink. Well, in the Old Testament, there's all of these rules about what you can eat and what's kosher, what's allowable to eat. Acts 10, starting at verse 9, Peter was on a housetop of Simon the Tanner. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter was up on the housetop in the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and he wanted to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opening and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and on it were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the sky. And a voice came to him and said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. Peter is kosher. He's doing what the law of Moses said to do. He is determining what is allowable for him to eat based on what the law says. So therefore, he argues with the Lord and says, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. And again, a voice comes to him a second time and says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unclean or unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Do you see the contrast? The Old Testament says, don't eat these animals. They are unclean animals. Peter's told by the Lord, eat unclean animals. Peter, the lawkeeper, even argues with the Lord. No, no, I would never eat anything like that. And as a consequence, God says to him, don't you call unclean what I've called clean. Now, there's more to that lesson than just eating everything. Now everything is allowable to be eaten. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, and 28, Paul takes the time to say, if one unbeliever invites you and you want to go eat with him, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for the sake of conscience. Eat anything? Without conscience? Wait. Wait. The rule is there are certain animals we cannot eat. 
but Peter and Paul have both told us that rule changed. Why did that rule change? New covenant. A completely different, separate covenant is in effect. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, said things like, you've heard it said. And then he would quote the law. And then he would say, but I say. And sometimes he would say things that were distinctly opposite from the law. Like, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yep, that's in the law. That's genuinely fair. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You hurt somebody else, they hurt you back. That's the way the law goes. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. Someone smites you, strikes you on one cheek, give them the other cheek too. That's different. That is not an extrapolation or explanation of the law. You could look at eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth the rest of your life, and you would never deduce that what God meant by eye for eye, tooth for tooth was turn the other cheek. Because that's the opposite of it. All I'm showing you is all these contrasts between the law and the new covenant. A moment ago, I told you Peter on the housetop was told, rise and eat these unclean things. He took from that a lesson that was far, far more than just you can now eat whatever you want. The Jews had always believed that Gentiles were filthy. Gentiles were dogs. That was the word they used for them. They had always believed that they were the chosen people. After all, they had the covenant sign in their bodies. They had the circumcision. They had the mark of the Abrahamic covenant. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had all the covenants. Every covenant in the Bible belongs to Israel. They have the oracles of God. They have the word of God. They have the scripture. They have the place where they can commune with God once a year, where they can sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. They have the feasts. They have the Sabbaths. They're clearly the chosen people on planet Earth. In Isaiah, it even says, I've chosen you out of all the peoples of the Earth, not because you were the greatest in number or because you were the best. I chose you. Okay, so they're walking around saying, we're chosen people. Those other people, those Gentile nations, those non-Jewish nations, dogs. God didn't choose them. And so the assumption was that they were not under the blessing or the covenant of God. And then Peter, the very one who was on the housetop, who was told, don't call unclean what I've called clean. In Acts 10.28, Peter says to the assembled council of the Jews who are arguing about the law and how much of it needs to be imposed on Gentiles who are coming to Christ, Peter argues, you yourselves know that it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate or to visit with a foreigner. And yet God has shown me that I am not to call any person unholy or unclean. How did Peter learn that lesson? Well, on the housetop, when the food came down, when God went from, this is unclean, Gentiles, food, this is unclean, 
over to, these are now clean. How? What happened? They didn't clean themselves up. The animals didn't make themselves better. The Gentiles didn't change. And yet, God says, clean. How does that happen? The new covenant. All I'm trying to drive home so far this morning is that there are enormous contrasts between the old covenant and the new covenant. Turn to Acts 15 in your Bible, and we're going to read most of this chapter because I am, believe it or not, introducing the book of Galatians at this moment. Uh, Micah came through the door this morning and said, are we going to get to Galatians today? And I said, sort of, kind of. We're going to introduce it. We're going to work our way toward it. But you need to understand the conflict that was going on in Jerusalem between the law-keeping Jews and Jewish believers because the first century church was Jewish. Eventually, the message of the Jewish Messiah made its way to Gentiles, but the first church was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. And so, of course, there would be a conflict. Of course, there would be a debate about, well, what about these Gentiles now that are coming to Christ? He's the Jewish Messiah. Of course, he would come to us. We're the chosen people. But now there's Gentiles joining the Jesus movement. What do we say to them? Because they don't know Moses, and they weren't at Sinai, and they don't know the law, and they don't have the scripture. What do we say to them? Do we impose the law on them? And how much of the law do we impose on them? And since so much of the law was about the priesthood and the sacrifices and the temple, and they don't have any of that, do we impose those laws on them? That's the debate that's going on in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. Some came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There's your entire argument right there. Unless you do some Moses stuff, you can't be saved. Okay, now if that was all we read, we would have to conclude that what the first century leaders of the church came to was, well, then we Gentiles need to get busy cutting on ourselves, and we need to figure out how much Moses is appropriate, because clearly, if you're not circumcised, and it's not according to the custom of Moses, well, then you can't be saved. And of course they would think that. Of course they would think that. Because the Abrahamic sign is circumcision. And only descendants of Abraham can be saved. That's why Paul later is going to go into such an extended argument about the fact that Gentile believers are, in fact, the spiritual offspring of Abraham. So you can see the the fight that's developing in the first century. You've got a contingent of believers, apparently, people who were following after Jesus. They came from Judea in Jerusalem, and they began teaching Gentile believers, 
Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So now Paul and Barnabas, who have been planting churches among the Gentiles, who are not telling Gentiles they need to be circumcised, and as we're going to see in the book of Galatians, as you see in all Pauline letters, he is arguing that Gentiles do not have to keep the law of Moses. After all, he argues, the law of Moses never saved any of you Jews. So why would you impose it on people who already have the Holy Spirit of God? They've received the Holy Spirit of God, which is the sign and seal of their salvation. So why would you impose on them rules that never did you any good? So you can see in verse 2, when it says that Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, yeah, I'll bet when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the particular apostles, to those who were with Jesus, to those who heard Jesus teaching firsthand, and to the elders. The elders are Peter, John, and James. You're going to see several references to the elders in Jerusalem. It's Peter, John, and James. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and by the apostles and by the elders, and they reported all that God had done. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now we know the two sides. You've got Paul and Barnabas and those that are with them saying, you know, the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit without the law, without circumcision. Clearly God is not requiring that of them. And then you have those of the Pharisees. I mean, these were the strict law keepers. You can see why they would look at their own 1,400-year history and think, well, we're the chosen people, we're the descendants of Abraham, we're the followers of Moses, and the Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. He's our Messiah, he's here to save us. So if you want to be saved, you got to be one of us. Because after all, we're the ones with the scripture. We're the ones with the Messiah. We're the ones with salvation. So how do you become one of us? Well, in the Old Testament, it says that if a foreigner were to join themselves to Israel, they had to be circumcised. And then they had to live by the law of Moses. So the first century Pharisees who were coming to Christ also are looking at their own history and concluding that Gentiles coming to Christ have to also be circumcised and also keep the law of Moses. 
But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, (laughs) I'll bet there's a lot to argue about here. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did us. Okay, now Peter would know what he's talking about because he's the one who stood up and spoke at Pentecost. At Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit fell, while they were still in the upper room, when they had tongues of fire and they spoke in other tongues, and then Peter got up and spoke the wonderful works of God, and these people, these Jews who were gathered from all these different regions, who spoke all these different languages, all heard him in their own tongue. Okay, that's an act of the Holy Spirit. He knows what the Holy Spirit looks like, for lack of a better word. He knows how the Holy Spirit acts, how the Holy Spirit manifests himself among people. And here Peter is arguing, I went and preached the gospel to Gentiles, and they gave evidence that they received the Holy Spirit. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So Peter's argument is, I'm circumcised. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm keeping the law of Moses. They're not. I receive the Holy Spirit. They receive the Holy Spirit. So I can only conclude that God made no distinction between us and them. Even though we're two different people groups. Even though we're the Abraham people. We're the Moses people. We're the law people. And they're not any of that. And yet it is evident that God made no difference between us and them because he gave them the Holy Spirit the same way he did with us. He made no distinction between us and them because he cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's referring to the law. He said it's been a yoke on our necks that we couldn't live up to. We've done everything we possibly could, and we failed continually. And so why then, if it failed to save us, would we go to people who God is in the process of saving and then insist that they have to carry that same yoke that we carried that never did us any good? Now, therefore... Why do you put God on trial? Why do you put him to the test? And why do you place upon the neck of these Gentile disciples 
a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So it started at do the law. Do every bit of the law. You have no choice but do the law. In fact, God said at Mount Sinai, and when you don't do the law, I'm going to curse you. And I'm going to curse you bad. So they had no choice but do the law. And they even stood at Mount Sinai and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They confirmed the covenant and said they were going to keep the law. And the law didn't save anybody. In fact, I point out frequently that the Old Testament ends with the word curse. Didn't save anybody. And so Peter says, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus the same way that they also are. Faith in Jesus Christ is how people get saved, not by the law. So why would we impose the law on people who are coming to Christ? And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So the coming of the Holy Spirit, the signs, the wonders, all made it evident that God was right there in their midst. God was busy saving Gentile people, and he was doing it without the connection to Abraham, without the connection to Sinai, without the law of Moses. And that was the essence of the argument that Paul and Barnabas and Peter were making. Verse 13, and after they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written. I really like what James is doing here. He consulted the scripture. Let's go back and see what the scripture says. Let's see what the Bible says about it. Here's what he quoted. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Okay, so the argument is God has already predicted the inclusion of Gentiles, so then it should be no surprise that Gentiles are coming to Christ. This is the work of God. I think the essence of James's argument then is, why are we resisting God? Because God's clearly doing it. That's what Peter argued. If God is in this, as evidenced by the giving of the Holy Spirit, and you resist it, you're trying God. You're testing God. You're saying that God doesn't know what he's doing and that you know better. And so James agrees that the scripture itself predicts that there are going to be Gentiles in order that the rest of mankind 
may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. By the way, when is that all going to finally happen? Well, when he rebuilds the ruins and restores the tabernacle of David. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. And because God is a covenant-keeping God, we Gentiles are being saved by faith through Jesus Christ because God keeps the new covenant as well. Therefore, says James, verse 19, therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. I just find that kind of humorous because James said, okay, they don't have to keep the law. Okay, they don't have to be circumcised, but we got to give them some rules. We got to put something on them. So there are rules in the law against idol worship. And so this is what Paul later has to address, even in areas like Corinth, where there's a big argument that breaks out in the church about can you eat meat that was sacrificed to idols? Because the rule that came from James is keep yourself from idols. And then Paul has to say, no, an idol is nothing. If you get a stake in front of you, don't worry about where it came from in the shambles in the marketplace. If you get some food in front of you, eat the food. Give God thanks for the fact that he fed you again. So this argument between How much grace do we have through Jesus Christ? And how much law is imposed on us in Jesus Christ? This argument was hot and heavy in the first century, and it continues to this very day. Churches are still arguing to this day about how much of the old covenant do you impose on the church? Anybody here ever been taught to tithe? Okay, why? Because churches are still importing old covenant concepts. And bring them into the new covenant. Have you ever heard that Sunday is the new Sabbath? Where, where would people get that idea? To begin with, Sabbath means seven. Sunday is the first day of the week. So in their mad attempt to take some part of the law and impose it on the church, they're actually saying mathematic impossibilities like seven is now one. That makes no sense. But it's just the continual desire to at least apply some rules on people. I had a preacher tell me 20 years ago. He said, you know that grace that you teach, Jim? He called it that radical grace that you teach. He said, you can't go around saying that to people. They'll go crazy on you. You give them that kind of freedom? You got to impose some rules you got to put some law on them. I said, well, that would be true if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God taking up residence inside you, changing your heart and your mind so that you desire the things of God, that's a person you can give freedom to because they will pursue the things of God. Yeah, you don't give radical freedom to the lawless people of this world. You lock them up. 
OK, that might not make it to the internet, because that would make me really unpopular. But anyway. So James says, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in their synagogues every Sabbath, every Saturday, every seventh, as the Jews would gather in their synagogues, Moses was getting a fair hearing. That's James's point. So then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them or with them. Here's how the letter went. The apostles and brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourself free from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Okay, so what was missing from the initial argument in that letter? There's no mention of circumcision. None. And yet, the letter that Paul's going to write to the Galatians is necessitated by the fact that some of these very same Judaizers end up in Galatia among the Gentiles insisting that they be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. I just wanted you to see some of the background so you understand the conflict so that you don't think that these Judaizers who show up in Galatia just arrived out of nowhere. They were part of a group, part of a sect who believed, and again, I think it's completely understandable, they believed in the Jewish Messiah and that when Gentiles came to the Jewish Messiah, they needed to become essentially Jewish. That makes sense to me. I don't agree with it, but I understand the argument. And after 1,400 years of law keeping, you can see why they weren't quick to just say, oh, that whole law thing? Ah, eh, never mind. No, of course not. 
They had the attitude of, look, we had to do it. And if we had to do it, you, you got to do it. Because misery loves company. Galatia, I just mentioned Galatia. Galatia refers to a region that is now north-central Turkey initially, even though eventually it spread south. The name Galatia comes from the Gauls originally. There were 20,000 Gauls who settled in that area around 278 BC. And that's where Galatia comes from. In 25 BC, that area became a Roman province. And then it was extended to the south, as I said. In Paul's day, that new province of Galatia included the regions of Pisidia and Phrygia and Lyconia. And those are all mentioned in the book of Acts because Paul visited the area of Galatia on all three of his missionary journeys. According to the book of Acts, Paul's travels through South Galatia included the cities of Pisidian Antioch, which we were just reading about, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. The Apostle Paul established congregations among the Gentiles in Galatia during his first missionary journey. And the people of Galatia had this very long history of Roman idol worship, and they were versed, I mean well-versed, in Roman mythology. You can read about that in Acts 14. In fact, let's do that. Turn to Acts 14 for just a moment. Just turn back one chapter. And I'm just going to read um, a couple of verses that constitute the whole thing. I'm going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read (laughs) Acts 14. Came about that in Iconium... They entered the synagogue of the Jews together and they spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews, who disbelieved, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Okay, that's another contingent now that Paul has to deal with. Not only are there the believing Jews, who are the Judaizers who are trying to get Gentiles to circumcise and keep the law. But then there's also the unbelieving Jews who are adamantly against Christianity, which makes sense because, after all, if Jesus was who he said he was, then that makes them who he said they were. That makes them whitewashed sepulchers. That makes them a den of vipers. That makes them the children of hell. So, of course, they would want to stamp out Christianity So Paul is getting pushed back from every area, and this is before Rome decided to also start oppressing Christianity. The Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders would be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it 
and they fled to the cities of Lyconia and Lystra and Derby. Where's that? Galatia. And the surrounding region. That region is Galatia. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And at Lystra, there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had the faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leapt up and he began to walk. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice because they were steeped in Roman mythology. They decided these must be Roman gods among the people. When the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and they began calling Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, Why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all nations to go their own way, and yet he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good and gave rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city And supposed him to be dead. Okay, so Paul went into Lystra and did good things. It was all good. He did good things. And then he preached the gospel. And then Jews came and stirred up the people and stoned the very man who a minute ago they were trying to make into a god. And why were they turned? Because of the Jewish conflict between the old and the new covenant. Verse 20, but while the disciples stood around him, Paul arose and entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel in that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Why would you go back to the place you just got stoned? (laughs) Went back to Lystra and Iconium and then to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, 
they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, then they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. That's the beginning of chapter 15, which we've already read. As Paul is standing there in Antioch, telling about all the great things of the grace of God and what had been accomplished among the Gentiles, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Are you getting a feel for the conflict? That's really all I'm going for this morning, is that you understand the conflict that happened at this particular moment in time when there was the clash between the old covenant And the new covenant. And that is why the writer of Hebrews would say the old covenant is old, decaying, ready to die away. That's why Paul would use the language of the complete eradication of the old covenant. He was making a distinction and saying that the new, just like the writer of Hebrews says, is far better based on better promises and a better covenant, based on better blood. It's all better, and yet, at every turn, there were people who absolutely resisted it. So then Paul went back to Galatia on his second missionary journey, turned to Acts 16. I really am nearly done. Acts 16, I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Perhaps, maybe, we don't know. And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra. Where's that? It's Galatia. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. Pay attention. The son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man, Timothy, who would later go on to become his son in the ministry, Paul wanted this man to go with him. So Paul took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those parts. And they all knew that his father was a Greek. What just happened? It's the very same Paul who says, for Gentiles, no circumcision. He's adamant about it. Wait till you see the language he uses in the book of Galatians. I mean, he uses fierce language to oppose the idea that Gentiles need to be circumcised. And then he runs into Timothy, whose father is Greek, but his mother's Jewish, which means he has Jewish heritage. And he wants to take him into the temple among the Jews, and he knows the Jews are going to reject him because they know he's Greek. They know his father is Greek, so therefore he's uncircumcised, so he can't come into the temple. So what are we going to do? Because he has Jewish heritage, making him a descendant of Abraham, Paul agrees that the sign of the Abrahamic covenant needs to be on him. So Paul does not say... Okay, the whole Abrahamic covenant circumcision thing, 
That's done away with because the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. It continues on anyway despite the coming and going of the law covenant, despite the inception of the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is still good. Therefore, Timothy, who has a Jewish mother, who is a believer no less, Timothy is still circumcised. Later, Paul is going to say that Titus, who is a Greek who doesn't have that Jewish heritage, and Paul will not circumcise Titus, and yet he circumcised Timothy. What's the difference? Jew, non-Jew. Non-Jewish, no circumcision. Jewish heritage, continuing the mark of the Abrahamic covenant, because the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant that continues on. Verse 4, now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith, and they were increasing in number daily, and they passed through the Phrygian and the Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing them and takes them back to Galatia yet again during this second missionary journey. Turn to Acts 18. I'm just going to read two verses. I'm going to let you go. There are two verses that matter here. This is Paul's third missionary journey. And where does he end up? Verse 22. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church. Then he went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he departed and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul has such great affection for the churches in the Galatian area that he is responsible for establishing that on each of his missionary journeys, he made sure to go back there and to strengthen them and to reassure them in the Lord and to teach them the ways of Christ. And yet, he's going to begin the letter to the Galatians by saying, I'm amazed at you that you would so quickly turn away from me. I mean, he would go there and tell them the truth of salvation by grace through faith. Judaizers show up and say, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law of Moses. And they go, oh, no, are we supposed to do that? I guess we're supposed to do that. Let's do that now. And Paul uses harsh language in order to adjust their thinking, in order to defend the true gospel of grace. So to this very day, we, Sovereign Grace Churches, we're still defending that gospel. We're still standing against the traditions of men. We're still standing against the messages that are preached every Sunday around the world telling you what you got to do and how you got to clean yourself up and you got to fix yourself up and then maybe God will save you. Or you got to choose him or you got to decide for him. You've got to just do something. Tithe. Be a Sabbath keeper. Keep the Ten Commandments. Or in my chiropractor's case, Keep the whole book of Leviticus. There's so much confusion out there. But there was confusion in the first century. 
And that's why this debate in the Bible is so important for us to study and why we'll be looking at it for the next few months because the debate still continues to this very day. And if you ever get it straight in your head, the new, qualitatively new, decidedly new covenant, if you ever get that right and understand your freedom from the law, free from the law, oh, happy condition. Jesus has died and there is remission. Oh, 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 oh. Not only does that make you feel real good, I can worship that God. If it's a God in heaven waiting on me to validate him to do something, it's not a very powerful God. But a God who can save a wretch like me, that's a God I can get down on my face in front of and say, you are indeed a righteous, holy God, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But you, by your grace, through your son, have saved even a wretch like me. I will worship and praise that God forever because that is the true, genuine gospel, the good news. And the good news for you is that for the next couple of months, we're going to be talking a lot of good news. So next week, Micah, we'll get to Galatians. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.